Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. morning. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Esther, start of a new series for us. The book of Esther. We're just going to read the entirety of chapter one, and then we'll begin our study. So they're picking up in verse one of chapter one. The author of Esther writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, 
not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Now, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. Now, if it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So, when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you so much for all that it contains for us. And we ask now, by the power and mercy of the Holy Spirit, that you would bring this particular word to bear upon our hearts. Help us to be convinced that the world is not enough. Help us to be convinced that Christ is enough. Help us to be convinced that you are the true sovereign of the world, especially as we continue to live for your glory as your elect exiles amidst this world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the great philosopher of recent lore, Forrest Gump, once said, life is like a box of chocolates, everybody knows. You're all great philosophers. You never know what you're going to get. And I suppose from one point of view, there's some truth to that. Right? You go to bed, you survive the night, it's not guaranteed. You wake up, you take your meds, maybe some of you shower. You eat breakfast and off you go, and off you go into this great unknown into a day of a thousand decisions and what may you may think are, are just sort of random and inconsequential circumstances. Right? That's one way of viewing the world. One point of view. We might call it a world up or strictly human perspective. And if we're being honest, as this is the worldview that dominates our world, we're prone to live by it too. Now, this point of view that skirts around the wonder that there is not an atom in the universe that is free from the guiding hand of God. And so friends, there is another point of view that comes to us heaven down, not just world up, but heaven down in the Bible. It's very important. And from that point of view, nothing, however slight, is random. Destiny is not written in the stars. History is not this wound-up clock that's sort of mechanically running its course, but there is a God in heaven who is exercising an inscrutable, perfect providence for His glory in Christ. And this is true even when the chocolate 
in cases that dreadfully hard caramel or some part of a nut's outer shell. You bite down on it and it pulls up a cavity. Right? It breaks the tooth. It strikes a nerve. I still remember my wife's grandmother having a bite of a, a pistachio pudding that hadn't been totally cleared of all its pecan shells. And she bites down on it and the shell won. Right? And she just sort of ho-hum, because that's how she was about everything, pulls out a tooth, split in two. Point is, sometimes God's purpose includes our pain. And, thank God then, our pain is never without God's purpose. There is such a thing as bitter providence. And it's when we're given to taste of that bitter providence that we often find ourselves asking the great question, where is God in all of this? Where is God in all of this? We're not asking Him really just to, to, to turn bitter water sweet as He does in the Old Testament by throwing a stick into the water. We're just wondering, what is going on in my radiation treatments? What's going on in the exhaust of this life? Where is God in it? Where, as the culture spiritually deteriorates and thus gains influence? Where, as megalomaniacal despots ravage the people, they're supposed to be ruling with justice? Where, as the child walks away from their parents' faith, though the parents were faithful to teach them that faith from birth? Where, as churches adopt the world for a home, so there's really no more point to the church? Where, as we're put to the fight, and some choose not to live by faith, but to live by sight, not heaven down, but world up. Where is God in all of this? And the answer is that He's there. He's there. Sovereignly, omnipotently present, working all things, all things together for our good. To prove Himself a God always faithful to His Word, everything that He's promised us in Christ. And don't we need that reminder as his elect exiles in this world. God may be hidden from us, but he is never absent. And he is never idle. Very much to the contrary, in fact, he who governs all is actively present in all he governs for the final good of his people. And well, welcome to the book of Esther. As we come to the story, we have two stages we need to set. And the shorter of the two is this historical context for the book. And here, we'll just note that these events seem to take place less than 500 years before Jesus comes into the world. During the time of Ezra, during the time of Nehemiah, you may be more familiar with those guys. And that's really important for two reasons. The first reason being that what God promised about a return from Babylonian exile a century or more before has actually now happened. That has now actually come about. God told Isaiah that he's going to raise up this pagan king named Cyrus who would set the people of Israel free from their captivity. A century or so has now passed. Cyrus has come. Cyrus has gone. And Cyrus did exactly what God said he would do. God's people were granted to return to the city of God. And so God is true to His Word. 
God is always faithful. But, now here's the other thing. When they could have returned, some of God's people, for speculative reasons, chose to stay abroad in pagan lands. And some of those people includes an Esther. Hmm. And so the questions then become, how will God relate to such as these and Esther? Will He continue in faithfulness to His people wherever they are geographically or spiritually? Will He prove to be the Lord of all the earth or not? Is His presence and power and providence merely provincial or is it all pervasive? Is the God of the Red Sea Likewise, sovereign in control in the court of a pagan king. Even in the most dreadful darkness, the question is, does our God reign? Does our God reign? And is He there for us? Which brings us to stage two and to our text. And so we come with the clever author of Esther to expose the world's most powerful man as nothing more than just that. So first, we just need to see that that is what he was. His name, verse 1, you see there, was Ahasuerus. And if you sound his name out in Hebrew, it would come out to something, no lie here, come out to something like King Headache. King Headache. And whether that were all he was, for as we'll see, he might have better been called King Heart Attack, right? for he was lavishly and spiritually dead. That's why he's the headache that he is. But the aim at first is simply to say he is a filthy, rich, without rival kind of person. And really just to to wow us by all of that. He is the world's most powerful man. You remember Solomon. You remember Solomon and all his riches and all his glory and all his greatness and pomp. It was beyond compare, we're told in the Bible. Well, Then a king came along named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar ate all that up. And he added it to his kingdom. Which his son Belshazzar then inherited when Nebuchadnezzar died. All that inheritance was then quickly lost to a guy named Cyrus, whom I've already mentioned, is the father of the Persian kingdom, who upon his death seemed to have left all that loot, several kingdoms worth now, to Darius. And Darius was the father of King... Ahasuerus. Yeah. So, it would be quite the understatement to say that Ahasuerus was a well-to-do person. He was, in this sense, a beneficiary of several kings and several kingdoms. He was kind of a king of kings. Furthered by the note that his kingdom spanned 127 provinces. You look at a map of that time and you see that means his kingdom covered the whole known world almost. And it's that almost that drove him crazy. In fact, biblical historians noting the year mark there of his reign in verse 3, year 3, hold that his, this impending feast in this passage is held because of this almost. Apparently, Ahasuerus has a thing against 
the Greeks. Like, I have a thing against Gamecock athletics. I love the people, but I, I can't do the teams. And at any rate, it appears this feast is held in order to give assurances to those who would join this military campaign that he was ready and able to put his money where his mouth is. In essence, it was to assure his movers and shakers in the land that there was no one like him, there was no king like him, there was no sovereign like him in all the world. Who could stand before King Ahasuerus? Who could rival his clout? He was a god. And victory seemed to be a given. And well, what a spectacular show it was. I mean, I've never been much for parties. I'm not a party historian, but I feel comfortable saying that few, if any others, have thrown a party lasting 180 days. I don't even know how that's possible. How do you even survive that? If my math is right, that's nearly half a year. Say from January start to June's end of nonstop partying. I would not think that that is the best training camp for an army you mean to turn around and stick on the Greeks. I just spent seven days feasting at the beach and left feeling like I could barely move. What do I know? Well, I know that after this 180-day feast, the king took a long break to recover. No, he did not. But because he was such a nice guy, such a good guy, he threw another, let's call it a minor feast, for all the people in Susa, great and small, it only lasted seven days. And it's here that we're invited into the king's utter excessiveness. In two long verses, verses 6 and 7, you see there, the author begins to detail for us the court of the garden of the king's palace, that's where everybody is gathered. There are white cotton curtains, there are violet hangings fastened with fine linen and royal purple to rods of silver and marble pillars. That's all up there, your eyes come down, there are couches, not leather couches, couches made of gold and silver atop a mosaic floor comprised of the most expensive gems in the world. So there's nothing else mentioned like the palace of King Ahasuerus in the Bible except one structure. You know what it is? It's the former temple of God, which was a replica of a house above made of no human hand. Coincidence? There are none. That's part of Esther. For all intents and purposes, Ahasuerus appears to be in the place of God. He appears to be what only God actually is. And in light of it, surely God's exiles under his reign in Susa, they never felt so small, so insignificant, so pitiful, so problemed, so doubtful. Where is the Lord. How comforting it must have been to read this beginning, knowing the end of the story. Right? But I digress. We'll get there in a couple months. Back to Ahasuerus. 
The greatness of his palace is only matched by the expanse of his wine cellar. This is no red cup keg party. Okay? No. Bring out the golden vessels, no two alike, and put the king's best wine on a tap without limit. There's only one law. That law is not prohibition. That law is there is no inhibition. The law is drink as much as you like. And oh, by the way, you are free to act a fool. Drink yourselves to death. Do whatever you desire. Happy hedonism without hindrance day. And all this king's men and all the world's godless said, Amen. And they say that because as Paul implies in 1 Corinthians 15, they cannot see beyond the veil of this world. That's the activity, what we're seeing in this chapter, is the activity of those who are blind to God and blind to His eternity. If Christ is not raised, if there is no resurrection, if this life is all there is, if I am functionally God and I am all I have to do with in the end, what does Paul say? He says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's nothing after it. So live it up. And to the Christian then, the apostle adds this, as necessary, wake up. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning as the world does. We're moving now as we must into the sins and circumstances that expose this king of kings. I think we can surmise that Ahasuerus isn't a man who's well accustomed to being told no. He's used to getting what he wants. He's used to thinking he is in complete control. He's used to parading himself around as an absolute sovereign. And yet, this rich, young ruler, A, never has enough. Which proves more than you think. And B, when denied his desires, shows to all a stunning lack of control. In one of the old James Bond films, I don't mean like Sean Connery old, but like James, or Pierce Brosnan old, which is old for a lot of us in here. 1999, I think it was. One of those films, Electra King says to James Bond, listen, I could give you the world. And James Bond replies, as only he could, the world is not enough. And she says, that is such a foolish sentiment, to which he responds, no, that's a family motto. Indeed. That is the human family motto. Lost or found, we all sense the reality of Solomon's words, how God set eternity in our hearts. He made us with an infinite capacity for joy that only He can occupy and only He can satisfy. The world is not enough. The world is not enough. It was not enough for Ahasuerus. Listen, He had most everything the world can offer at his fingertips. But nothing did he have that lasts besides an impoverished soul self-suited for wrath. But as he was blind to this, as we are blind to this, 
He was never, we are never, what's the word? Happy (laughs) or content. He needed grease. (laughs) And if he got that, guess what? He would need something else. And if that was true of this great king, do we think anything of the world can satisfy us? Well, if only I had fill in the blank. That look. That connection in the community. If only I had that identity. If only I had that toy. If only I had that power. If only I had that job. If only I had that control. If only I had that fund. If only I had that person. Then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. No, loved ones. There's not enough in this world to fill you up with the joy for which you were made. There's only enough in Jesus Christ. This insufficient world wants you to keep up with the Joneses. The all-sufficient God simply says, come to me. Okay? Which, in a way, strangely, brings us to Queen Vashti and the pendulum swing of chapter 1. We see that alongside the king's party, Vashti has hosted her own party. Probably watched My Fair Lady with big hats, like you ladies did. But as his party, as the king's party reaches its drunken pinnacle, it apparently dawns on the king, wait, they haven't seen everything yet. In fact, They haven't seen anything yet. And this is where we all cringe. Starting in verse 10, we're told that the king was royally smashed. And that in this 187 day state of inebriation, he thinks it a thing commensurate with his glory to put his incomparably attractive wife on the menu of a drunken male audience who have again been ordered by the king to do as they please. And so the king sends some eunuchs commanding Vashti to come and be this awful crowd's eye candy. And in an incredibly daring move that I personally chalk up to some measure of self-dignity and respect, the queen says, no. She tells the world's most powerful man, who's at the height of his attempts to give off the near impression of deity in order to assure his guests of future conquest and victory, she tells him in that moment, in front of all those people, no. They may all be impressed with the king, but the queen, his wife, is not, in fact, she's rather disgusted, I would imagine. My, how embarrassing for this king of kings. Well, all that follows is like a mighty wind against the king's glorious house of cards. He who wants to give off absolute authority, total control, unquestionable conquest is rightly refused by his own wife. (laughs) And he does not 
help his case by then acting like my two-year-old when I tell her, no, you cannot have another popsicle. He trades out one kind of flame for another, and he becomes enraged. And what is it? What is it that the wise king once said in Proverbs 25, verse 18? How, quote, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Yes, let's follow him into battle who can't even keep himself from crumbling. But we're not at all finished. We're not at all finished. No, he next runs not as he should have to his understandably insulted wife. He runs to his drunken support group, his silly buddies, here called wise men versed in law, which is just a bit of irony on the way to a whole bunch of it. And so the king asks them, what's to be done to Vashti? Enter Mamukin. Kind of sounds like mucus. Mamukin is slimy. Okay? Enter Mamukin, who I presume speaks for all the rest as a very anxious fellow with a peculiar skill for blowing things way out of proportion. Listen, king, what Vashti's done to you is just the start of things. It's going to spark this fire of feministic deformation throughout the whole kingdom. No man, no husband, not even I, I mean, whatever, will be safe from our wives. So my suggestion, an irrevocable law needs to be decreed that includes Vashti's banishment, a better, I think he means entirely obedient Queen in her place. And every man then a master in his house. That's what he's after. Now then, it's part of the style of Esther simply to report what happened without any added commentary on the morality or spirituality of what is reported. That's a little frustrating. That said... We have a whole Bible for a reason. And along with the God-given ironies of the scene, I'll just say this. Wives are called to follow the lead of their husbands. Who are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. There's to be grace and self-sacrifice both ways which is to say, far too briefly, that as I relate to Jenny, less as a Hashuerus and more as Jesus, all the things tending to darken God's ideal for marriage would more readily bend to the light of Scripture and to the real substance of it in the Gospel. If you want more than that, we just preached a sermon on it in 1 Peter chapter 3. And go and listen to that. Or we can talk this afternoon. But, as much as we may want it to be, that's not the main point of the author. The main point, again, is exposing the world's most powerful man 
as nothing more than that. The sheer incompetence of the king and all the king's men makes for quite the comedy. They don't want word to get out about Vashti's rebellion, so what do they do? Obviously, they send out a kingdom-wide letter in every tongue about Vashti's rebellion. Okay? The king tried to control Vashti by a decree. That didn't work. So what do they do? They try to control all women in the kingdom by sending out a decree. Vashti did not want to be in the king's presence. So, what do they do? Banish Vashti from the king's presence. Her punishment is exactly what she wanted to have happen. It's the stuff of laughter. All to show that this king is not the true Lord of the world. He may have a God complex, and he does. But at the end of the day, he's just another sinful man. He's just another sinful human being. And so here, this king is exposed. And to move along, all of it is really just stage setting for the world's true sovereign. It's God orchestrating all things by this thing called providence to raise up Esther in the place of Vashti and bring about all the circumstances through which he will glorify himself as always faithful, though sometimes here in Esther, out of sight. The uniqueness of this book is that it's the only book in the Bible where God is never, not once, named. He's never mentioned. He never speaks as in every other book of the Bible. There is no prayer. There are no miracles. You get the picture. God is completely hidden. Silent. Which, as one put it, is the genius of Esther. That when we can't feel Him, when we can't see Him, He is yet present. And by providence, both everywhere active and in a real sense, seen. And oh, how I so do desire us to see this, not just in Esther, but from Esther out in our everyday lives. This is just a worldview thing. We are not deists here at the Mount. We believe in a God who, Psalm 139, knit every single one of us in this room right now, knit us all together in our mother's womb. We believe in a God who knows the number of hairs on our head. Some of us more than others. We believe in a God who calls the stars by name. The billions upon billions upon billions upon billions. We believe in a God who notes the death of every sparrow. It doesn't happen apart from Him. We believe in a God who attends to the clothing of the lily. How many of you have lilies? all over your yard right now. And, as it says in Proverbs 21, verse 1, we believe in a God who holds the king's heart in his hand 
as a stream of water that he turns wherever he wants it to go. Ahasuerus is not the true sovereign. God is, even when he's unseen. In Brian Gregory's commentary, he recounts an art teacher and his disciple examining a painting by Rembrandt. And the, uh, the teacher asked the student to find Rembrandt in the painting. So he begins to look at faces, the student. He begins to look at the, the faces in the painting, and he begins to look for a, maybe a signature somewhere that Rembrandt has left behind. Things that would be obvious to us. And after a while, finding nothing, he just gives up in utter frustration. I don't see the, 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 the painter anywhere. To which, after a bit of a master's pause, the teacher gently answers this. He says to the student, while you look for obvious things, faces, and signatures, I see the subtlety of artistic style. And I see the character of brushstrokes. And that is why you look at the painting and conclude the artist is nowhere. And it is why I look at the painting and see the artist everywhere. And Gregory rightly applies this to the study of Esther. He says it would be easy as in our own lives to see only the obvious, to see people and events and these kinds of things and conclude God is nowhere in it. But he says, this is precisely where the author of Esther, the master teacher, comes alongside and for the sake of God's elect exiles, tells us to have another look. And just this time with the eyes of faith, and you will see God is everywhere. He's all over the page. Beloved, by providence, we mean that God is invisibly and inscrutably governing all creatures and actions and events according to His eternal purpose in Christ, and so, finally, for the everlasting good of His people. So, Ahasuerus' lust for Greece, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Ahasuerus' lust for Greece, that's not coincidental. And neither then was the feast that led to a drunken king, that led to a drunken call, that led to a spurning wife, that led to a banished wife by way of fool's counsel, which led to Esther, without whom the Jews would have been exterminated. Jesus would never have come. Redemption would never have happened. Hope would never have dawned. The church would never have been born. God would have been undone. And the whole cosmos would implode. But God was mysteriously and unbeatably active then in Esther's day, even as he is today, to work all things, keg parties and all, together for the everlasting good of his people. What? That brings me to the person called Jesus. Strangely pictured in Ahasuerus, only thank God by way of contrast. Friends, Ahasuerus wanted to portray himself as a God who could assure the hearts of his people of victory. 
with riches and glory for days. He held a feast for all within his palace, a feast that exposed him as a vainglorious king, a really awful husband at best, and a sinner in need of someone else, a savior king. Jesus is the Son of God. In him, listen, God was hidden and yet revealed. He appeared absent, but was actually quite present, more than ever before. And leaving his glory behind, he came into the world not to be served, like Ahasuerus, but to serve. He was gentle and lowly of heart, so much so that though he was offered the world by Satan in his temptations, he chose the cross. <laughs> and he never sinned because he loved God and because he loved his bride. He never hated her like Ahasuerus did Vashti. But, as the song goes, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And after, he rose again. So now he lives. So now he lives, and he invites you to come to him. Not as Ahasuerus invited Vashti. Not as beauty to the beast but as the beast to true beauty, as the sinner to the Savior King. Now friends, how much sin and how many sinners are in just this chapter 1 of Esther? We don't even know. It's crazy how much there is. I want to tell you, Jesus has done enough to save any, even in a, in a, in a Hashuerus, who repent. Any who repent. Any who believe, any who would come to Him, be you arrogant, be you covetous, be you a drunk, be you an objectifier of women, be you a raging, angry despot, be you a fool, whatever you are and have been, the grace of Jesus is greater than the sins of Ahasuerus. The grace of Jesus is greater than your sins. The grace of Jesus is greater than mine, praise God. And just so, His glory distinct as it is, is also greater. Ahasuerus showcased his glory for 187 days. And we hear that and we think, who can compare with that? 187 days. We walk through his palace like Jesus' disciples, marveling over the wonder. Marveling over the wonder of a glory and a kingdom that had a definite expiration date. However many days it was, it was only days. And God has set eternity in our hearts. Lift up your eyes, friends. Ahasuerus reigned 21 years. And that's it. And that's nothing. The Persian kingdom only lasted 150 more years. And that's it. And that's nothing. But our risen Jesus owns a kingdom that stands. To Him belongs a glory that has no end. 
The throne of Ahasuerus might have looked daunting to God's people then, but it was eventually in time shaken and undone. And all the while, God sat upon His throne above, this sovereign of sovereigns, with a smile. Boy, do I have a surprise for the world. A surprise now revealed in Jesus. Ultimately, loved ones, Esther, like every book of the Bible, is about King Jesus. And Revelation chapter 7. And that innumerable multitude. You heard it in the chapter. All kinds of people. 127 provinces, language, tongue, tribe, everything's there. Gathered around the throne of Ahasuerus. It's nothing. Revelation 7. This innumerable multitude from all tribes, peoples, and languages, clothed in white and standing before the throne and before the Lamb joyously crying out together as one people, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) And so, dear friend, do not refuse Him who is now speaking to you. When this King calls, you needn't fear it. Salvation from sin is just on the other side of it. And just so, life everlasting. Beloved, I want you to take heart. No matter what's going on in the world, our God reigns. See the cross upon which the King of glory died, where God was hidden, and yet to the eyes of faith, revealed. And where our Lord Himself underwent divine absence. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me that we might never doubt his presence? We will never be forsaken. So, in the end, there is something we can bank on in this box of chocolates called life. Even when hidden, God is, and God's there, and God acts, and God is always faithful. As the old song teaches, deep and unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. So, judge him not by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. With that, I welcome us to the book of Esther. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. What glory there is in it. We thank you for the ways that you show us Christ, our King. And pray now that our hearts would be captivated again, afresh, in an abiding way, captivated for Him, to Him. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the ways that you lavish us. Thank you for the hope of glory. Help us to love you above the world. Only you can meet and satisfy our hearts longing. And so be glorified in it. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.